Today's episode is sponsored by a brand new podcast, The Primary Ride Home, the podcast that will keep you up to date on the primary elections without wasting your time. Someone's going to be challenging Donald Trump for the White House. The Primary Ride Home is dedicated to figuring out who that someone or even multiple someones will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail, who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, and what the polls say. It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Primary Ride Home podcast. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the efforts being made by the leadership of the Democratic Party to retain their power and their relationships to moneyed interests and the progressive effort to pull the party to the left and away from corporate donors. Clips today come from The Trump Cast, The David Pakman Show, the Real News Network, The Young Turks, and The Intercept. Even if the Republicans have their own set of fractures, they pale in comparison to what we've seen within the Democratic Party. Could you run us through the six wings, as you call them, the six wings of the Democratic Party you recently wrote about? So what I described was what I called the sort of super progressives, which I put Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, probably the most notable person in that group. What we define, this is sort of an informal ranking, but we were to sort of define them as people who are pretty liberal on what I'll call economic issues. So let's say Medicare for all but also pretty liberal on issues that are sort of non-directly economic. So like I use a proxy that is sort of the people who favor abolishing ICE. So that's super progressives, abolish ICE, Medicare for all. We said kind of very progressives are people who are probably like left on the economic issues like Medicare for all, maybe not as left on the identity cultural issues. So I put Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in that bucket. We call the next group progressive, but not super or very. So the progressives, we said there's like a new guard of progressives who are liberal on those issues, but maybe not as liberal on economics or cultural issues. We gave Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams as among the examples of that. We then had a group we called old guard progressives, which is Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. And the thing we distinguished there was we were talking about the fact that those people are pretty left on the issues, too. But they're pretty focused on electability and the Democrats presenting themselves as acceptable to the middle of the country. And so that ends up making them less liberal sounding than other Democrats. And then we talked about the Mm -hmm. moderate wing of the party, which we can identify as people who are in Congress, mainly in the House. A lot of the members elected in 2018, we said of moderates, people who are going to vote against the liberal wing and kind of are critical of the liberal wing. And there's a lot of new Democrats in that group. And then we finally said conservatives, which is like I think the most prominent, I would argue, sort of Joe Manchin of West Virginia, the senator, who is hostile to abortion rights and pretty conservative on a number of different issues. And so those are the six blocks. Super progressives, very progressives, progressive old guard, progressive new guard, moderates, conservatives. 
Now, one of the central paradoxes facing the Democratic Party as it heads into 2020 is that the party's left wing, what you call these super progressives, are driving the conversation at the moment. All of a sudden, it seems like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has taken the role of sort of like a gatekeeper, at least when it comes to the younger generation, the younger vote. And yet, as you point out, and this is very interesting, there are actually very few elected officials who could be considered super progressive. So in a way, this still is a minority within the Democratic Party. Yes, I would argue the people who are sort of abolish ICE, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, that might be 10 members of the House. And maybe I don't think there's any senator I'd put in that group. I'm not sure there's any governor I'd put in the group as a Democrat. But that said, I think the important thing the left has going for it is it has a lot of aggressive policy ideas and a lot of energy. And so in some ways, the sort of more rightward parts of the Democratic Party don't have those really strong ideas. So a lot of times what you see is the more conservative part of the party says that's unrealistic. We can't do that. That's not a particularly compelling message. That's not going to drive the argument. So you have one side saying climate change is an existential crisis and we have this big, bold plan to solve that. And the other side is saying, well, your plan is not realistic enough without necessarily having its own plan. So you have one wing of the party that's driving a lot of the ideas and one wing that's reacting a lot. And whenever you're reacting, you're often in a place where you're not leading the discussion. So it's 10 members of the House. It's a very small percentage of the Democratic majority. How strong is the super progressive clout within the party in reality? Is it an exaggeration, you think, to think of Ocasio-Cortez and her peers as kingmakers during the party's upcoming primary? Yeah, I don't think they're going to be kingmakers. I don't think that, you know, having 10 people endorse you will make that big of a difference. But would I rather have Alexandria Casio's and Cortez's endorsement or Chuck Schumer's endorsement? I'm not sure. And I think I might rather have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's endorsement than Chuck Schumer's, because I think that captures a lot of what's going on in the party right now, is I do think the young people, the activist wing can bring you fundraising, can bring enthusiasm for you. So I think there is some usefulness and some excitement to that wing of the party, even if most necessarily the voters are not really there. I've interviewed a couple of Democratic politicians in the last few weeks, and I've noticed they feel an obligation to either endorse the agenda of these super progressives you're describing, or they tiptoe around any sort of criticism of that platform. Given the undeniable impact that these super progressives have in social media and the news cycle as a whole, even if they are very few in numbers, do you think this could turn into a sort of a tyranny of the minority scenario within the Democratic Party? I mean, it's not like these House members are being held at gunpoint and being asked support the New Deal or, or New Deal or else. I think they have choices. I wouldn't use that framing. But I do think that they are feeling pressured. But again, that's in part because what I would argue is that the kind of Obama view of politics, which is that the Democrats should try to be toward the center and look to work with Republicans was basically invalidated by 2009 to 2016. The kind of let's have a centrist approach to climate change didn't convince any Republicans to come on board. So I'm not surprised that it's, there was a push for more liberal people to say, why don't we try a more left-wing approach because compromise is not working anyway. So I think that that is not surprising to me, but I think there's sort of a rejection of Obamaism, if not Obama mm -hmm. himself, that I think is really important here.
Okay, I want to talk today about something called the narcissism of small differences or the narcissism of minor differences, as it's sometimes known. And this, uh, with the announcement that Bernie Sanders is running, he's now in the 2020 primary, it's a really important conversation for the left to have. And it's an important conversation because of some of the factions that are developing on the left in short terms, in sort of like the, the briefest way to define this, the narcissism of small differences is when the small differences that separate certain people are overstated to such a degree that they appear to be massive differences and cause conflict when there really doesn't need to be any conflict. This goes back to the 1920s and Freud, actually, but there's lots of different interpretations as to where this originally comes from. But the idea is we become narcissistic about our own views on small differences with other people. Why this exists is open to some interpretation. There's one idea more from Freud that there's a kind of satisfaction to humans of an inclination to aggression, a mild inclination to aggression. And if it seems like we agree on 95% of, of stuff of political issues, for example, something in us becomes satisfied when we find something we can be aggressive about or hostile about with other people. So we focus disproportionately on the 5% difference rather than the 95% uh, agreement or similarity. Another idea about where the narcissism of small differences comes from is that there's just a kind of general desire to be different. And so when we see that we have a lot in common with someone else, we have a resistance to feeling that we're just like them. So we will find small differences to argue about so that we feel unique. Uh, Christopher Hitchens had many interesting commentaries that sort of circled around this idea. The reason that this matters is that when you become consumed by minor differences, things start to become exclusionary. I'm separate from those who have this minor disagreement with me. And we start to focus on the trivial and kind of miss the forest for the trees, to use a metaphor. So let's now look, starting with the 2020 primary, at how this is starting to manifest already. It's a primary, right? So we've got to make a choice between the options. We do have some duty to figure out what are the differences between the candidates. And there are important differences, but then there's also minor differences that are not practically speaking super important. Let's look, for example, at Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. On policy positions, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are very, very similar in terms of where they've ended up. Now, I've pointed out to you. Elizabeth Warren comes from the center more and has been pulled to the left. Bernie comes from more of a left socialism perspective and has been pulled towards pragmatism. He and Elizabeth Warren have basically ended up in the same place on most policies, not on all. Great. We don't have to go crazy arguing about Warren versus Bernie in the destructive way that I'm already starting to see friends do on Facebook. They're two of the leftmost candidates. They are arguably the two leftmost members of the United States Senate. If either of them won the primary, I would gladly vote for either. Let's not allow narcissism over small differences to cloud that they're not only obviously better than Donald Trump, uh, but they're mostly better than a lot of the other Democratic candidates as well.
probably don't think about your socks all that often, but maybe that's because there's not much to think about. Whereas I've been a convert to Bomba socks for years and still appreciate each pair for their style and comfort when I put them on. Just as you'd expect, they have lots of fancy features like super soft natural cotton, arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed, plus fun styling and colors to choose from. But the thing I think will put you over the top is their philanthropic mission. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, so they built Bombas from the ground up to sell socks to customers and give away socks to those in need, one for one. To take advantage of our special offer, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. On Saturday, President Obama, speaking about the race for the presidential nomination of the Democratic Party, said progressive candidates, and he seems to think they all are, should be careful how they speak about each other. Here's what he had to say. One of the things I do worry about sometimes uh, among progressives in the United States, maybe it's true here as well, um, is a certain kind of rigidity where we say, ah, I'm sorry, this is how it's going to be. And then we start sometimes creating what's called a uh, circular firing squad, where you start shooting at your allies because one of them is straying from purity on the issues. Uh, and when that happens, typically the overall effort and movement weakens. So now joining us to talk about President Obama's uh, caution to progressives is Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn teaches at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books, including more most recently Storming the Heavens and The, the Apocalypse of, the, of Settler Colonialism. Thanks for joining us, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. So President Obama wants progressives to be careful. What do you, what did you make of that? Well, I think he's reacting to a number of events. Uh, number one, he's been criticized for being silent as his vice president, Joseph Biden, comes under attack for his repetitive and frequent violations of the personal space of women over the years and over the decades. Mr. Obama has been eerily silent in coming to Mr. Biden's defense. And I think that that rather elliptical comment that you just played in some ways is a response to that. Secondly, in Mr. Obama's own Chicago, you've had a stunning electoral victory by five Democratic socialists on the Chicago City Council in the recent elections. Uh, this has caused a storm of outrage amongst many centrists, and Mr. Obama might be reacting to that as well in this ongoing conflict between centrists and Democratic socialists to their left. And then finally, uh, Mr. Obama's policy in Libya obviously is up for inspection and scrutiny. Uh, as we speak, there's a bloodbath that's about to unfold in Libya. Recall that in 2011, Mr. Obama and his NATO allies, including Britain and France, helped to oust the previous regime of Muammar Gaddafi, which has inaugurated an era of crisis and catastrophe. 
turning that North African country into a gateway for migrants crossing the choppy seas of the Mediterranean, oftentimes drowning in the process. And even when they land on European soil, particularly Italy, you see demagogic politicians using their presence to help to generate a neo-fascist movement. Mr. Obama says that his response to the day after Mr. Gaddafi was ousted was the biggest blunder of his administration. I dare say that authorizing the overthrow of Mr. Gaddafi was probably the biggest blunder of his administration. So in speaking in rather vague terms, it seems to me Mr. Obama is pursuing multiple agendas. Yeah, I agree. I, I thought there was an interesting moment early on in the Clinton-Sanders debates in that primary where uh, Hillary Clinton says that Bernie and her are both progressives. They both want the same things. Uh, they just have different tactics, different ways to get there. And President Obama, when, when he was in power, tried to, to talk the same way. Uh, and they're hiding a very obvious fact that these differences in the Democratic Party are differences of fundamental interest. You know, the section of the Democratic Party, you could say one of whose face is Chuck Schumer, but there's others, uh, many others to be true, are very much tied up with corporate America the same way leaders of the Republican Party are, maybe somewhat different sections of corporate America, but not always. Sometimes the same people give money to both sides. Uh, the differences are a question of class interest, the fights that are taking place in the Democratic Party. And Obama doesn't want that record critiqued, and, he, and not just Obama, but the party leadership wants the kind of AOCs and the Bernie Sanders, you know, play nice because they don't want these class contradictions to be, uh, you know, fully exposed. Well, I think you're right with regard to being tied to different sectors of capital. Historically, the Democratic Party has been close to the entertainment industry, particularly Hollywood executives. They've been close to finance capital, particularly Wall Street. Republicans oftentimes have been closer to manufacturing and those who employ labor with those unionized workers that they employ, oftentimes being supportive of the Democratic Party in turn. The question is, how long can this system continue to last and persist, particularly given the strain that it's coming under, given the rise of the juggernaut known as the People's Republic of China? I paid very close and careful attention to a recent statement by Ray Dalio of Connecticut, a billionaire hedge fund manager, one of the not only 1%, but the one half of 1%, who said, and I was rather stunned to see this, that the United States system of capitalism may no longer be sustainable and that those like himself are basically courting the risk and danger of revolution unless something changes rather quickly. He suggested, among other things, uh, and this was not high on his list, uh, higher taxes on people like himself. But I'm afraid to say that that's going to have to bubble up from the grassroots and we should not be depending upon the one percent to tax themselves at a higher rate. Yeah, he did 60 Minutes did a profile of him uh, just uh, the past Sunday where he said essentially those things. Uh, the, the, there is a, a, a fine line, though, for people like Sanders and, and others who are, I would say, are in terms of their policies, progressive, where I think uh, people that are often called corporate Democrats, uh, I don't think are very progressive. Of course, that name, that label progressive starts to be meaningless when 
practically everybody is claiming it. But there is a, 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 a fine line that actually progressive candidates have to walk here, which is, yes, they need to fight for the nomination. And let's say Bernie's the leader of this progressive charge. It seems like certainly at this point he is. Uh, maybe it becomes Warren, but it sure looks like it's going to be Bernie. Um, but if he doesn't win, he said himself the uh, priority is defeating Trump. He may have to go out and do what he did with Hillary. He may have to go and campaign for somebody who is, in fact, a corporate Democrat in order to defeat Trump. So how do they play that that game? Because to differentiate himself in the primary, he needs to critique these policies of the corporate Democrats. Oh, I think that Senator Sanders will be on point in terms of critiquing the 1%, whether or not he'll be critiquing those within the Democratic Party who reflect the 1% is another question altogether. But recall that Mr. Sanders only caucuses with the Democrats in the U.S. Congress. Uh, he does not necessarily consider himself to be a card-carrying member uh, of the Democratic Party, which gives him a bit more flexibility uh, when it comes to uh, going after some of his comrades like AOC, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, is doing as we speak. And in any case, uh, we're going to have to keep a very close and careful eye on Mr. Trump's attempt to keep his tax return shrouded. The latest news is that in New York State, and of course he's a resident of New York State, legislation is about to be passed, which would allow Albany, the state legislature, to inspect his state returns, which then provides an opening to inspect his federal returns. And I'm not sure what might shake the confidence of 63 million Trump voters, but certainly exposing him as not being a billionaire or perhaps being a skinflint and not contributing to charity may serve to chip away at his support, providing a further opening for Senator Sanders if he's the nominee for U.S. president in 2020. Now, the point you were making about him indirectly coming out in defense of Biden in this uh, speech of his, uh, perhaps it's also that if Biden gets over this uh, sort of Me Too moment of, uh, and uh, continues his run, it sounds like he's going to, uh, doesn't Sanders in his critique of Biden have to critique the Obama record? And may, is that partly what Obama is saying? Don't go after my record because that will be the circular firing squad. Well, I don't think that Sanders will have any hesitation in terms of critiquing the Obama record. If he does, I'm sure that his left wing supporters will light a fire under him and push him forward onto that agenda, into that circle. Because I do think that there needs to be a reckoning with regard to the years between 2008 and 2016, how people like Senator Biden and then Vice President Biden helped to pave the way for the rise of Donald J. Trump. Uh, Senator Biden, in terms of his uh, lackadaisical approach to Clarence Thomas during the Anita Hill hearings, Senator Biden, in terms of his stern and staunch opposition to busing for school desegregation in the state of Delaware, Senator Biden, with regard to his full-throated support for the crime bill, which locked up a generation of African-American youth in particular. And so I'm not really that concerned about Senator Sanders going after that record, uh, although perhaps I'm wrong.
Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi, in a testy exchange, said this after Ocasio-Cortez upset the establishment incumbent Joe Crowley. Democratic voters in New York last night seemed to express a problem. Yeah, they did. They made a choice in one district. So let's not get yourself carried away as an expert on demographics and the rest of that. That was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi nervous and agitated when the reporter suggested that AOC's victory over Joe Crowley could be part of a larger trend. After the victory, Pelosi was incredulous and the rest of us are looking around like, of course it's part of a larger trend. Even this former Bill Clinton and Michael Bloomberg strategist Hank Scheinkopf acknowledged it. This is the first wave of an invasion to attack the things that this younger generation is experiencing as pain, he said. Student loan debt, lack of affordable health care, the anger, and a sense of disinclusion. It is the generational revolt of the 60s that is occurring in the early part of the 21st century. Damn. That's as clear as day to those of us on the ground, but not to the party leadership who are, of course, disincentivized to see it because it threatens their power. Which is why they're actively trying to suppress the next Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley or progressive primary challenger that would threaten their position. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Campaign Committee has announced that they're completely coincidentally changing their hiring standards policy. They will refuse to work with or give contracts to any political consultant who has worked with someone trying to primary a sitting Democrat. Yes, it's a blacklist, as DCCC Chair Sherry Bustos proudly boasted about on Morning Joe. Uh, We are telling vendors that we do business with, and keep in mind that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, we will raise somewhere around $200 million over the next couple years. What I'm saying is if you're in the business of helping elect Democrats, we'll do business with you. But if you're in the the business of opposing Democrats who are in office or the seats that we're trying to pick up, then we probably don't want to do business with you. Progressives, do you want to hire a consultant for your campaign? Too bad. The DCCC has blacklisted any firms from working with you if they ever want to work for the DCCC again. It's outrageous. And luckily, Ocasio-Cortez and others like Pramila Jayapal are fighting back. Last week, AOC tweeted, the DCCC's new rule to blacklist and boycott anyone who does business with primary challengers is extremely divisive and harmful to the party. My recommendation, if you're a small dollar donor, pause your donations to DCCC and give directly to swing candidates instead. The DCCC did not like that. CNN's Manu Raju reported that Busto said AOC's strategy of telling small dollar donors to not give money to the DCCC, quote, works so well that we had record fundraising numbers in the first quarter. Well, you know what? That's true. You raised a ton of money, Bustos, from corporations and PACs. The DCCC raised nearly $19 million in the first two months of this year, more money than it had raised by this point last election cycle, and the committee is relying more heavily on corporate lobbyists to collect checks. Lobbyists whose clients include healthcare, oil, gas, and coal interests raised almost $440,000 for the DCCC in January and February, Federal Election Commission records show. Many of their clients oppose progressive priorities like a Medicare for All healthcare system or a Green New Deal to mitigate climate change. This comes after the DCCC reversed an Obama-era ban on lobbyists and PAC donations, classy and really reading the mood of the voters well. This year, led by centrist Democratic Representative Sherry Bustos of Illinois, the DCCC has already received almost as much money via donations bundled by corporate lobbyists than in all of 2017. Ah, 
when will you centrists realize if you play the corporate money game, you will always lose to Republicans, always. They will always out-big business you, out-corporate you, no matter how much blood money you take or how far to the right you run. As Don Draper said, if you don't like what is being said, change the conversation. If you don't like the way the game is being played, change the rules, rely on small donors, and welcome new blood like AOC into the party. If you're confident about your standing in your district, you shouldn't have to worry about primary challengers. You supposedly represent the will of the people, right? Or are you actually kind of scared of democracy? In our last few minutes, I just got to talk 2020 with you. Okay. Um, some people hate the horse race. I unabashedly love it. <laughs> We've had a lot of exciting high-profile announcements this week. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris was in there. Obviously, Elizabeth Warren has been uh, in the race for a while now. Um, Kristen Gillibrand. I mean, we have three of the top leaders now, all women. Mm-hmm. This has generated a lot of excitement, yeah. depending on how much credibility you put in certain DNA tests. Several of those women <laughs> are women of color. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so the question becomes, you know, how, what are we looking for? What are our kind of, um, priorities, uh, in this race? You know, I have been, you know, noticing a lot of excitement around the idea of, um, kind of, uh, uh, um, glass ceiling breaking candidates or, or candidates who will be first for reasons that are understandable. Um, but there is Pete Buttigieg on the cover of the Washington Post magazine, <laughs> first millennial president. First, first millennial who? president, first. Gay pre- president, yeah, you know, exactly. there's a lot of firsts. He, exactly. He's yeah. the mayor of South Bend. <laughs> oh, which sorry. Is I did not here. mean that in a disrespectful <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's, it's warranted. Yeah, no, you should say what Alex, yeah. Alex said earlier. Oh, what, he's named after a, 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 a place town? where the highway bends? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if, I don't know, so he could be great. He could be great. He, he could, could be, be great. great. But the question becomes, in that profile, there was nary a mention of any policy. Mm. So the question becomes, there, there seems to be this division between candidates where um, identity is being emphasized and candidates where policy is being emphasized. And I think that what a lot of people are really attracted to about you is that you're a candidate who, or a, a, a representative now who is able to merge the two in a way that f- fulfills a lot of people's interests. So I'm curious to you uh, about you. There's been a lot of talk of litmus tests. Mm-hmm. People put a lot of different things in their litmus tests. What are you looking for in an emerging 2020 candidate? What are your priorities? So I think that um, oftentimes policy and progressivism gets pitted against identity in a lot of different ways. And uh, and it is it, it just like makes a mess, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> and for me, I think it's important on one side for the progressive side to not ignore the power of identity because I know when I was running my race in the very beginning, I was running with a very strong progressive base and a very strong progressive coalition, but that alone was not enough to take me over the top. Mm -hmm. And it was when I really leaned in on this broader message and crafted a progressive message that was rooted in my life story that we were able to really capture a much wider electorate, even though my progressive message was still the same. And so I think it's important that we don't ignore the power of identity because it is very powerful, especially for women, especially for the rage of women right now. It is, uh, you know, Rebecca Tracer has written about this. It's like, mm-hmm. Women's rage is a very potent political force, and it 
changes things on the right and the left. You know, it was primarily these women back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. It was primarily these white women who were supporting the, the Ku Klux Klan that got all of these statues erected in the South that are being taken down today that people think were erected around the time of the Civil War. Right. And so it's it's a very potent political force on both sides of the aisle. And um, and so I think it's something that we shouldn't ignore. I'm, I think it's great that we have multiple female presidential candidates. So there's not the woman running. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, my God, you know. So I'm very excited about there being multiple women across a, a, a that can represent different parts of the political spectrum mm-hmm. on the left. So that's something that I'm that I'm thankful for because it means that we don't get boxed in as one belief. And so I think that's really good. Um, I am a horse race hater. <laughs> I hate them. I'm like, can like, don't ask me until the day before the New York primary. It's like how I feel. Um, but I do think that obviously from from maybe not obviously, but I think it's pretty obvious. Like what we're trying to do is is frame the debate and the conversation that we're going to be happening in the next that's going that we're going to be having in the next two years, regardless of what that candidate is. So I do not think that for the future of humanity and for our country to continue to prosper, that we cannot have another presidential cycle where climate change is not being asked about at almost every debate. And that includes the role of fossil fuel, fossil fuel industries, and that includes the role of um, of, a, of a broad spectrum of issues. And so I think that climate change needs to not be a nice thing for us to talk about, but it needs to be a critical thing for us to talk about. Um, of course, it would be amazing to see Green New Deal talked about. Um, and it's it's starting to. And so that's really exciting. But I think it's it's less a, lit, a, a hard litmus test on a specific issue and more a litmus test on framing. Mm-hmm. So I do not think that the 2020 candidate can afford to not have an intersectional message mm-hmm. that weaves the story of race and class. Today's episode is sponsored by the new graphic novel, Cannabis, the Illegalization of Weed in America, which delves deep into the troubling history and legacy of cannabis legalization in the U.S. In the category of not surprising at all, white American lawmakers decried cannabis early on as a vice of, quote, inferior races, unquote, because it made its way to the U.S. through the immigrant labor forces from Mexico who shared it with black laborers, and we've pretty much been on that path ever since. For instance, if you identify as a member of a minority group in the U.S., you are up to eight times as likely to be arrested for violating cannabis laws. Whether you're a cannabis enthusiast, a history buff, or graphic novel fan, this book has something for you. That's Cannabis, the Illegalization of Weed in America. Get your own copy wherever books are sold and smoke out the truth for yourself. And you can find a link to more information in the show notes.
the way that Israel has acted, especially under the Netanyahu government, but throughout throughout its 70 years, but especially in the last decade, um, has made a lot of people who support Israel very, very, it makes it very difficult to support Israel. And if you're a liberal and you believe in equality and you believe in social justice, um, you know, many people have been saying this for years, it becomes increasingly uh, impossible to be both a liberal in America and supportive of Israel. Um, the human rights violations are just too apparent. The inequalities in the system of government within 67 Israel is apparent. Um, so Democrats will increasingly will be forced to decide, and the Republicans are actually forcing them to decide. And in that sense, it's it's actually mm. a very a very good phenomenon that we're seeing right now because that's, you can no longer stay neutral on this issue. That's a very interesting analysis, I think. Now, now let me just point out, you, you quote in your article, Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Betty McCollum. And let me just, the, the quote's on the screen, but let me kind of read this for people. The, the right-wing extremist government of Benjamin Netanyahu and its apartheid-like policies are at the core of what is alienating Democrats and a growing number of Americans. Now, and, and she authored a bill, uh, as you wrote about in the last session, that to prevent U.S. military aid from going to Israel, subsidizing abuse, subsidizing abuse of Palestinian children. Um, so this to me is really interesting. Plus, she represents what's known as a pivot uh, district, which went for Obama, then went for Trump, and then went for Democrats for Congress. So it, politically, this says a lot to me. And I, and I wonder what, what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think she's very brave and she has been consistent in recent years, one of the few um, representatives who is willing to take up this mantle. And I think, you know, she sees that under a government that is so extreme in Israel, she's allowed to do that. Um, I, unfortunately, her bill has not received enough support. Um, the Palestinian, you know, lobby in, in Washington is not strong. Right. Um, so American aid is not being threatened to Israel. So, but she's the type of, she and Omar and Clyde, if we have more and more of these coming out, and notice they're all women as well. Um, mm -hmm. the, these are the types of things we need to see more of. Um, for her to, to use the word apartheid is a very big deal. I mean, you know, in Israel, we've had even centrist leaders use that word as a future threat. Uh, so it's not that taboo anymore. Um, unfortunately, in, on Capitol Hill, it still is pretty taboo. So what she's saying is is quite you know revolutionary. But uh, anybody who looks at what's going on on the ground understands that. So I'd like to juxtapose this with, the, with an article I read that you wrote in 972 on the website um, about the controversy inside the Women's March around accusations of anti-Semitism. And I would say for our listeners, the, the viewers, that to, to really kind of check this article out because you really touched the depth of the nuance of this discussion. I thought it was a really well done piece. Um, but if you juxtapose what you learned there and what happened in the conversation with those women there and what's happening inside the Democratic Party, there seems to be a bridge here connecting this as kind of the broader struggle people are having around this issue. Right. Well, I mean, it connects in a lot of ways to the American Jewish community and how they are represented by organizations that don't really represent, certainly not the young American Jews who are active on Israel. Um, and people like Ron Dermer, uh, who's the ambassador to Israel in the U.S., and he, how he speaks on behalf of Jews in America and misrepresents them. He, when Pittsburgh, when the massacre in Pittsburgh happened, he got up on, on TV and said, uh, you know, started talking about Louis Farrakhan. And the Women's March has been embroiled in a controversy because of the ties of Tamika Mallory to Louis Farrakhan. Um, but the the effort to de delegitimize the Women's March, um, there is some nuance in there. I mean, there are 
there are anti-Semitic tropes within progressive left movements. That's always been the case. Mm-hmm. And my interview for 972 Magazine with the Jewish communications director was was about that nuance and about how certain people uh, have anti-Semitic understandings uh, based on their lack of education or based on the, the types of, you know, I don't think it's fair to expect, um, you know, uh, African-Americans to be educated on all the issues that have to do with Israel and anti-Semitism, just like many white American Jews are probably not that educated on internal black politics either. So, uh, you know, I think it's just really important to keep in mind that somebody like Ilhan Omar, uh, she did make this tweet that made a lot of news about how uh, it was back in 2009 under a different operation Israel did in, in Gaza, and she wrote that Israel is hypnotizing the world. And the word hypnotizing does touch on some anti-Semitic tropes, and she's already acknowledged that that was a mistake, and she's already acknowledged that it's something that she didn't realize. And I, and I saw very similar in my piece on uh, the Women's March that Tamika Mallory has also grown up, apparently grown up with Louis Farrakhan um, for her own reasons. And through that, she's starting to realize that she's been educated wrongly uh, about certain things, and she wasn't aware that these things were stereotypes and that they were offensive. And she's now acknowledging that. So at least you have um, some movement and some acknowledgement, whereas on the on the right, all you have are attacks and just efforts to just completely crush people's careers uh, regardless. And so I see, and overall, it sounds as if from the work you've written and what you're saying here today that that uh, that you actually this is see what's happening inside the Democratic Party and even the Republican push from, to, to split it as a positive movement politically, moving things forward in some sense. Yes, because the alternative is a status quo in which Israel continues to do as it pleases. And there was actually a report yesterday that settlement growth uh, since Trump took the White House um, has just flourished um, and that the, the gates have been opened. Um, Israel acts with complete impunity. So until people start to call, call it out, nothing will change. And that might mean that some people will have to risk their careers and their legitimacy to get there. We reported on how the DCCC uh, for the Democratic Party, obviously, had uh, implemented certain restrictions on individuals who are pushing to primary incumbent Democrats. Now, uh, the reaction is interesting because now you have progressives who are actually willing to fight back against establishment Democrats. Now, before we get to that, I just want to note that uh, the person at the heart of this is the head of the DCCC. Her name is Sherry Bustos, and you're about to hear from her on Morning Joe and the rationale behind these new uh, restrictions. Take a look. We are telling vendors that we do business with, and keep in mind that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, we will raise somewhere around $200 million over the next couple years. That's a lot of money that we spend with different organizations that help elect Democrats. What I'm saying is if you're in the business of helping elect Democrats, we'll do business with you. But if you're in the the business of opposing Democrats who are in office or the seats that we're trying to pick up, then we probably don't want to do business with you. Okay, well, that is clarifying. We appreciate her saying that on the record. So, Edithra uh, Pulsi obviously works on the House side, and so she is a representative from Illinois, uh, and she is a more conservative uh, representative within the Democratic Party. I know, big shock uh, that they put in a, a more corporate person to lead their reelection efforts in the House. Uh, so, uh, she said there, 
If you're in the business of opposing Democrats, we don't want to do business with you. Well, that part makes sense. But hey, whoa, 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 that's the straw man argument. Nobody's arguing with that. But then she added, if you're in the business of opposing Democrats who are in office, we don't want to do business with you. Well, okay, so then it's not about electing great Democrats. It's not about electing Democrats that'll push for better policies. It's just about protecting your power. And there's, of course, a money element to this. But what she's doing there is business as usual and otherwise known as the swamp. And but what is unusual is the pushback. And so we have great progressives in Congress now pushing back in an unprecedented way. But before we get to that, I do want to go to the second clip. So because now the progressives are opposed to her and this policy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, former Republican Congressman Joe Scarborough thinks it's a brilliant idea. Let's watch. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you what, nothing new to see here because if when I was in Congress, there was a vendor that was helping somebody trying to primary me, boy, everybody up and down the line would be hearing about it. Uh, you don't undercut your own members who are trying to hold on to their seats while you're trying to gain additional seats. Nick Confessor in New York. Thank wow. you, Joe yeah. Scarborough. Wow, Joe. It's it's amazing how much they flaunt their sense of entitlement, right? Yes. Because that's really what this is. It's undemocratic, small d, and it shows a level of entitlement that should not be allowable, that should not be applauded. No one should be proud of it. And Joe Scarborough is so proud of that sense of entitlement. No, no, if you are simply because you're a Democrat doesn't mean that you're representing Democratic voters in that district, as we've seen over and over and over again. That's the reason why AOC was able to pull off this stunning upset, because she actually reached out to the people in this district who felt that Crowley was not representing them. And so what happened in that race was, in my opinion, the epitome of democracy, regardless of which party it is or whether or not it's you know, a disagreement within the party. Yeah, exactly, and and that's good. You know, whether it's whichever party it is, I would disagree mm-hmm. with this. If it were even on the Republican side, it doesn't actually right. make a difference. This is all like animal farm like. It's like all animals are equal, but some are equal more than others. Yeah. And they're the Democrats that come from the establishment that have established the relationships with the corporations that provide two hundred million dollars to the DCCC. That that's basically what she said, and that's that's clearly what Joe applauded. The the reality is, yes, it's not democratic. It is. Um, it is a power grab. It is a power retainment. And it, we, we change as a country. The whole reason we've been able to put progressive, um, more progressive Democrats in office is because people elect them. Right. Because the actual people who actually go to the polls actually vote for them. That's the entire point of why we even have, we, that's the point of why we should have representatives in Washington representing the people that voted them into those positions. Exactly. So we're gonna get to the fight back against this idea in a second, led by wonderful, not just progressives, but really American heroes in my opinion. So we'll get to that in one second. But I wanna make a couple of notes here on what you just saw. So this is why I warn you about Joe Scarborough on the program, Morning Joe program. And I always say it's the epicenter of the establishment. And so, yeah, the establishment is not happy with Donald Trump either. And so they fight back aggressively against Donald Trump. And Scarborough is a former Republican, so he knows how to fight. But don't get deluded into thinking that Joe Scarborough is on your side. He ain't on your side. He's on the side of the establishment, the status quo, and 
keeping the elite and powerful elite and powerful. And he showed that they're like, how dare they ever challenge someone who's already in power? And then Sherry Bustos on the Democratic side is like, thank you, yes, right? And uh, and so I, of course, I agree with uh, Nomi and, and Anna on the, if it was Republicans, I'd agree too. I, I mean, I love when Dave Bratt beat Eric Cantor. I think Dave Bratt is, uh, was uh, totally hypocritical. Uh, I don't agree with any of his, Policies. He was, I think, totally lying uh, when he won that election, saying that he was going to hold the big banks accountable. But I, I don't mind populists from the right wing side coming out and challenging. And anyway, that's their business, not our business. I believe in democracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, now let's break down further uh, the different reasons, uh, you know, why uh, the DCCC might want to do this. So there's politics, uh, there's policy, and then there's money. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, first of all. Progressives want primary challenges for a number of reasons. One is you bring in diversity. So uh, look at, uh, look, Il, let's talk about the four new Justice Democrats. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib won open primaries. Those seats were open because we had people that left uh, Congress. But Ayanna Presley uh, in Massachusetts beat uh, a sitting incumbent Democrat, and so did AOC beat Joseph Crowley. They beat two white males and they are both women of color, young women of color. Now, that by itself doesn't necessarily, a lot of people are encouraged by that, and I'm encouraged by that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're headed in the right policy direction. In their case, they are, okay, they're very, very progressive and more progressive than the people that they defeated in their primaries. But what it does mean for sure is it allows for different people to actually enter Congress. Because if you freeze the current situation wherever it is, well, it will give power to the people who already had power. Mm -hmm. So some of these folks were elected decades ago, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So if you say, no, that's it, we're cutting off access, especially in the Democratic Party. What you are saying is we are going to further empower a lot of the white males that are already in, in, in charge. Now, the Democratic Party is way better than the Republican Party. It's not just white males, but that those are the folks who had power also in the Democratic Party for all this time. So it's great to have new blood coming in. And so this is systematically discriminating against people of color, younger people, and women overall. And so that's why the DCCC threw in like a cover in the second half of their announcement. They were like, uh, plus we want diversity and consultants. <laughs> Come on, it's so obvious what you're doing. But policy-wise, the DCCC is basically planting their flag and going, and this has been true for a long time, we don't care about policy. We, you know, you're progressive, you're not like getting bigger progressive wins. They, they don't care at all, right, okay? Right. Whereas for progressives, that's the most important thing. Why do we back AOC or Pramila Jayapal or Rokana? Because they actually want to get Medicare for all, Green New Deal, the things that we care about. I mean, Pramila Jayapal and, and Rashida Tlaib are not my aunts. They're not my cousins. They're not my nieces. I, we're, none of us are related to them. We care about them because they fight for policy positions. So we get on the Republicans case because they do whatever they can to avoid uh, standing up for policies that are actually popular with voters. 
And the way that they do it, and the way that they keep winning elections is they'll redraw districts, they'll gerrymander, they'll try to pass these ridiculous voter ID laws, whatever they can to rig the system in their favor. That way, they don't have to really stand for policies that are popular with the American people. We criticize Republicans for that. But in this case, we should criticize establishment Democrats mm-hmm. because they're essentially doing the same thing. I mean, they're doing it within their party. They're not doing it to, to rig the system against Republicans in this case. But you know, Democrats are real good at eating their own, like going after their own. Um, but my point is like, they don't want to have to stand for the policies. Jenk is absolutely right. They don't want to have the tough conversations about income inequality, wealth inequality, because those are the conversations that make the donors uncomfortable. That's right. And so again, just rig the system in your favor. That way you don't have to get challenged by primary challengers. There's something really ugly going on. Uh, within the 2020 Democratic primary. And uh, I have to tell you about it. If I didn't, I'd be doing you a disservice. You'll remember that back in 2016, uh, the way that the establishment fought against Bernie Sanders was through the DNC itself and through the superdelegate process. You'll remember hundreds of superdelegates pledged uh, informally to Hillary Clinton before a single vote had even been cast. They claim that they've fixed the superdelegate issue since 2016, even though it doesn't even really seem like it was broken in 2016 as far as they're concerned. It worked exactly as designed to prop up the candidate that is sort of approved by the Democratic establishment, what I call Democrats Incorporated. That was 2016. There is a truly vile report in The New York Times Uh, What it says is vile. I want to be clear, not the reporting. The reporting is good. And the reporting is about a stop Bernie movement that has started and which reportedly uh, includes in some way, shape or form Democratic candidate Pete Buttigieg. Now, I agonized over how to do this story because I don't want to participate in the internal smear stuff. I want to evaluate candidates on the issues, figure out who to vote for and go from there. And I think Bernie Sanders has great things to offer. I think Pete Buttigieg has great things to offer. But I'm going to tell you what the New York Times report says, and then we can all sort of decide uh, what what we make of it. Major Democratic insiders like David Brock, who I was on a panel with at Politicon last year, actually an interesting guy, says that every meeting he attends right now to talk about 2020 with Democrats The topic is the, quote, Bernie problem, as he describes it. And this gets us to a key paragraph of this New York Times uh, article or report, which says, quote, the matter of what to do about Bernie and the larger imperative of party unity has, for example, hovered over a series of previously undisclosed Democratic dinners in New York and Washington organized by the longtime party financier Bernard Schwartz. The gatherings have included scores from the moderate or center left wing of the party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, former Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, himself a presidential candidate, and the president of the Center for American Progress, I.S., our old friend, Neera Tandon. 
Now, I think it's really important here, Pat, to point out that just because someone has gone to some of these meetings doesn't mean that they're explicitly anti Bernie or pushing the establishment to, quote, stop Bernie. But I think I would be doing a disservice to the audience if I didn't tell them who is reportedly participating in these meetings. Yeah, um, it's disturbing if true, of course. I hope that it doesn't work out to their favor. Uh, I think Republicans back in 2016 tried to do a similar thing, which was to try to stop Donald Trump, and that didn't work out so well. So uh, hopefully the establishment isn't able to be successful this time around either. Now, let's make a, a sort of a sidebar here or a detour in our discussion before we analyze the, the specifics of the report. Why would the so-called Democratic establishment want to stop Bernie Sanders? There's not actually agreement about this. There are a few different competing theories, all of which could be partially true. And what I mean by that is um, uh, uh, on, on the one hand, if you look at Bernie's positions, his positions back in 2016 were marginalized to some degree, even within the Democratic establishment. Most of those positions have become common positions to a majority of the Democratic candidates in 2020. So when it comes to Bernie's ideas are just too crazy, it doesn't really fit the facts to suggest that that's the reason the Democratic establishment might want to stop Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders also polls at the top of all current candidates in these hypothetical matchups against Donald Trump. So the idea that the Democratic establishment would believe that Bernie is just way more likely to lose to Trump if he were the nominee. It also really doesn't make a lot of sense. So what are some of the reasons why the Democratic establishment might want to stop Bernie Sanders? OK, let's just get out of the way. For some people, it may be a question of ageism or identity. Bernie is 77 years old. Uh, there is quite possibly some contingent of the establishment that believes that demographically we need someone who is from a younger generation. That's a possibility. Um, more likely relevant, the Democratic establishment may not like that they can't really control and influence Bernie in the same way that they might be able to do with other candidates. What I mean by that is you're not going to intimidate Bernie into changing his political positions, which has been uh, something he's been consistent about for decades at this point in time. They can't uh, as easily do that with Bernie as they could with other candidates. Part of that is also because Bernie's fundraising is absolutely killing, just blowing other candidates out of the water. Um, another reason that the establishment might not like Bernie is that establishment Democrats could be worried that if Bernie's the nominee, uh, some moderate third party candidate will come up and maybe split the vote, handing Donald Trump a victory. It's a possibility. They might believe that. Another reason the Democratic establishment might not like Bernie uh, is they might be worried that if he actually wins, he could shake up the sort of two party duopoly status quo. And in general, in duopoly party politics in the United States of America, there is a major bias towards the status quo. What I mean by that is that both sides are advocating for the platforms that they've identified are their platforms, Republicans and Democrats. In the same way that there was Republican concern about Donald Trump, that even though, yes, he's a Republican and we don't like Hillary, he could be a Republican that we can't control in the same way. He could go off script off script and really challenge what we consider to be the important tenets of the Republican platform. In that same way, Democrats, Inc., corporate Democrats, establishment Democrats 
also want to push their platform, but within this sort of established uh, these established confines of how that two party duopoly is supposed to operate. Now, let's get to the analysis. This is a disaster. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. If indeed this what to do about Bernie, stop Bernie movement is um, uh, uh, gaining the type of traction that the New York Times article claim it is. History tells us that movements around being anti X rather than pro Y often fail in modern politics, particularly when the left does it. 2004, John Kerry. It was way too much about not Bush get Bush out and Kerry ultimately lost, although possibly due to foul play in Ohio. I think it's important to mention that 2016 Hillary, not a super well liked candidate. Uh, the big thing was we can't let Trump win. Hillary is not Trump. And again, not great results, although we're talking about 77,000 votes in three states making the difference. I've been saying about 2020 for nearly two years now, just being anti-Trump is not a platform in the same vein. An anti-Bernie movement is not a movement that is for anything other than saying more establishment, Democrats, Inc., same old status quo party politics. And we, we, we can't do it. OK, we just can't allow this to happen. As far as Pete Buttigieg's participation, I actually don't know what to make of it. As I said before, Pete Buttigieg's presence alone at these meetings doesn't tell us much other than he's been rising in the polls. He was invited to the meetings, and that's sort of all we can say at this point in time. My guess is if he was asked about it, he would say he welcomes a healthy discourse and he believes that the voters should decide. So ultimately, we're going to have to keep an eye on whether the DNC seems to crown someone as sort of their candidate early on. I got a bunch of phone calls from the audience saying, David, it's Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris. The DNC is sort of crowning, pre-selecting Kamala Harris. It doesn't really seem like that's the case right now. There's more discussion of it being Pete Buttigieg that the Democratic establishment may be leading towards, although we don't know. But the bottom line is, don't do this. You're setting yourself up for Trump until 2024, if this is the direction that we go down again, different strategy it would be than in 2016. The goal still being stop Bernie. Look at how it worked out for us. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Trump cast, looking at the six wings of the Democratic Party and which one has the energy. The David Pakman Show warned against the narcissism of small differences, while the Real News Network pushed back against Barack Obama's warnings about progressives criticizing conservative Democrats. The Young Turks laid out the terrible new strategy from the DCCC to blacklist any consulting firms who work for insurgent progressives. The Intercept spoke with AOC about her thoughts on a good 2020 presidential candidate. The Real News looked at how the changing politics of the Israel issue is dividing the Democratic Party. 
The Young Turks held a discussion about the politics and repercussions of the DCCC blacklist. Most importantly, that any attempt to prevent more progressives from getting elected will de facto result in preventing more women and people of color from running as well. And finally, we just heard the David Pakman show reporting on the establishment's concerns over the, quote, Bernie problem, unquote, and pointing out how well that worked out for us last time. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips on the toxic internal politics of the Democratic Party and the need to overthrow the old guard. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. If that's too steep for you, though, still consider supporting us and getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash best of left for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. I'm Bud from Boise. I'm a longtime listener. I was listening to the end of episode 1263, where you explain how healthcare insurance became tied with employment in the U.S. during the Second World War. It occurred to me as you explained that power was once more taken away from the worker by our own government. It may seem like a wash because the government restricted wages on the employer's side, but the employer still had an out they could offer health insurance. Meanwhile, less valued jobs still had low wages, and many of those same employers didn't offer health insurance on top of it. It's funny that the government can freeze wages, but they're awfully hesitant to demand employers increase them. That's all I had to say. Keep up the good work. Stay awesome. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. As is kind of customary with me, I am catching up on old episodes from the last two months. I've been extremely busy. And um, I'm actually calling in not to respond particularly to any show, but to something that has happened in the progressive world that many of your listeners probably know about. Something that I have some thoughts on, which may be somewhat helpful. I'm talking about the separation from the Young Turks of Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore has left the Young Turks. And um, I've seen many comments on this, and I'm not sure if you will do a show on it, if you will explore it or talk about it in any way. But I have a few comments. And I've been struggling with this because I was introduced to the Young Turks by your show. And in listening to them throughout the years, I have grown to depend on them for commentary. At least I did up to uh, the 2016 election when they switched allegiance from, I believe it was Bernie Sanders to Hillary Clinton and didn't give any reasonable explanation for it uh, in my mind. That said, many progressives, particularly those that frequent YouTube, see 
the Young Turks presently as more of an MSNBC light type of network. I personally have no comment on what kind of network they are mimicking, if they're mimicking a network at all. My thoughts on what has occurred, though, leads me back to what I was saying seven, eight months ago. Progressives are not a well-defined group. There is not a philosophical underpinning to it. And now you are seeing many people who progressives themselves, who have been calling themselves progressives for 10 years, are looking at and saying, there's no way this person is a progressive. Joe Biden claimed that he was a progressive. Nancy Pelosi claims that she's a, uh, a progressive. And Lord knows there's going to be others. This is why I was saying what I was saying. Because this country, in the state that it's in, it is looking for somebody, something, some philosophy, some theory that's going to help it recover. That is how bad things are getting. And if progressives do indeed have a true vision, then it is only going to be that philosophy that convinces those who are skeptical. A vision, as any business person will tell you, is nothing without a strategy and a philosophy underpinning it. The question of what are you creating is bigger than just Medicaid for all, tuition-free college. Okay, that those things are great. A progressive tax on corporations, all of those things are great. But what are you creating by doing that? Conservatives spin the lie that what you're creating is laziness, that you are creating a welfare state that destroys families, that destroys communities, that destroys enterprise and entrepreneurship. They spin that lie because there is no philosophy that you can point to and say, no, this is what we're creating from the ground up. The vision is in the air. That's the sky. That's the canopy. The philosophy, along with the strategy, forms everything beneath it. And what you are seeing now with TYT, what you're seeing with Jimmy Dore, is the beginning of a fracturing of progressivism. Unless you develop these things, that will unify people at a core level. Thank you very much for your work. Sorry that it was uh, long. And um, keep it up. We do need it. Peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to respond to V today, uh, in in rare form, we're, we're going to disagree a little bit, I think. And... 
he said a lot, so I could take this in a lot of different directions. But let's focus on the Jimmy Dore versus TYT split as a and, and use it as a lens through which to see the progressive movement and the Democratic Party and the sort of whole mishmash together. And, and V, I think, was sort of implying that this split – and if, if you don't know the details of it, it doesn't really matter that much. But he was sort of implying that it shows a split in the ideology of progressivism. It shows a lack of core beliefs for progressivism. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what it's indicating. I think that the the split between Jimmy Dore, who used to work with the TYT network, and the rest of the TYT network says a lot less about ideology and a lot more about strategy because they agree so broadly on so many issues that the differences between them really come down to how they attempt to achieve those goals. And, and so at its at its core, I think the difference is between sort of blind idealism and strategic idealism. I, I honestly think from everything I've heard from Jimmy Dore, I used to listen to him very consistently for years and years. Uh, he, he took a big turn during the, the the primaries and the election in, in 2015 and 2016, and he basically turned away from thoughtful strategy as part of his idea of how to achieve his goals. He stuck with the same ideology that I pretty much agreed with, and and we shared our beliefs in in the same goals, but our our strategies diverged very much, uh, and that's the same split that happened between Jimmy Dore and TYT, and, and so I think one of the core elements of this divergence in strategy is the lack of understanding about the oxygen that is given to the movements at the base of whatever president is in office. So under Obama, we saw the growth of Black Lives Matter, the growth of the con the concept of intersectionality for widespread social justice. We saw Occupy Wall Street and the Bernie Sanders campaign signaling dissatisfaction with neoliberalism. And under a Clinton presidency, we would have only seen these movements grow. Whereas under a Trump presidency, they've been almost completely pushed to the side. And so some, like the Jimmy Dore crowd, said that, you know, we, we couldn't afford more years of Clinton economics and that Trump would be better strategically for progressives electorally in the long run, which may be technically true, but this line of thinking did not consider the oxygen that would be taken away from progressive movements and given to Trump's base. So now, instead of those things I listed, Black Lives Matter, Occupy Wall Street, etc. We're fighting for reproductive justice. We have no expectation of help to come from the Supreme Court for the next 30 years, not to mention all the other problems and damage that that uh, court is going to cause. We're fighting against absolute barbaric inhumanity at the border. We're fighting against literal white supremacists marching in the streets. Uh, we're fighting against LGBTQ people's rights being repealed. <laughs> things we had already established are being rolled back. And so because we're dealing with all these things, 
we haven't been able to focus on the progressive campaigns that were launched during Obama's term. So I don't think that the problem progressives are having right now is a lack of identity or even a fracture based on identity. It's a fracture based on strategy and tactics. And the only thing muddying the waters of progressivism right now is that it's such a popular term that everyone tries to give it to themselves, whether it's deserved or not. And there is nothing new about that phenomenon. Back when people on the far left called themselves liberals— that word ended up being so popular, it was taken over by the moderates so much that the people, again, on the far left, had to come up with a brand new word for themselves. So they came up with progressive. Now that word is being taken over and the cycle will repeat. But again, that's nothing to do with a lack of core values. That's about being a victim of our own popularity. So as for the split, in strategy, Jimmy Dore and, and the Bernie or Bust crowd preferred a strategy of intentionally losing to Donald Trump in the hopes that it would wound the Democratic Party so badly that it could be taken over by progressives, which is in the process of happening. So I think they might have been right. In fact, I agreed with their arguments at the time. I heard their arguments two years ago. I knew that they were right about how 2018 and 2020 would likely play out in favor of progressives in the event of a Trump presidency. I just didn't think that it was ethical to throw marginalized communities to the wolves and put our burgeoning progressive movements on hold for four years in exchange for those theoretical future political victories. And nor did TYT, hence the split with Jimmy Dore, that really began way back in 2016. They've had a very uncomfortable relationship ever since then. The tensions have been simmering under the surface, and the split has only just been made official recently. It'd been a long time coming. If you have thoughts on this, I would love to hear them. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com